When you're trying to protect your family, there are many things you do. You may lock your doors, make sure everybody has life insurance, maybe protect them in ways so that they won't hurt themselves or others. But what happens when everyone thinks that your family needs protection from you? This week are Alton Newton, victim, Farrah Newton, victim, Adrian Newton, victim, and Francis Elaine Newton, our murderess. Francis Elaine Newton was born on April 12, 1965, in Harris County, Texas. She grew up in a large religious family with 10 other siblings. Uh, Her family and her siblings, they were actually very close. They went to church on Wednesdays for Bible studies. They went went to church on Saturdays because they had to prepare to get ready for church on Sundays. They were one of those families. And they were really close-knit. She was a really good student in elementary school, middle school, and in high school. And her family treated her well. All of her family treated her well. She was one of those people that enjoyed other people. And sometimes the company that she kept was not so great. Now, Adrian Newton, he grew up in Texas as well, and he had been caught up in the law a little bit for buying, using, and selling drugs even before him and Francis actually met. Around 1980, when Francis was only 15, and Adrian was 17 when they got pregnant with their first child, Alton. Now, Francis's family was very disappointed, of course, in her getting pregnant so young, but they wanted her to stay home. You know, they still wanted her to focus on being a kid. So they had her stay home, and they took a lot of the burden of taking care of the baby off of her. And Adrian's family was supportive also. Like, they just, they really lucked up when it comes to teen pregnancy because some niggas end up on their ass, and some niggas end up fending for themselves. And Really? Like, there's this interview of her, and she was, they was like, oh, it must have been hard being a teenage mother. And she was like, not really. I mean, I don't want to promote teenage pregnancy, but... My family was great. She's like, and then I got all them brothers and sisters. I always had help, so. Yeah, and that's just a blessing that some people just don't have. Like, she, I just know if it was me, <laughs> it would not be the same case. <laughs> well, at that time, she finished school, and her and Adrian continued dating and having their relationship. Now, they didn't live together because she was still staying with her parents. She was able to focus on high school, and then she went to college and got a degree and became an accountant, and she owes it all to her parents and Adrian's parents for helping her out. So July of 85, they end up pregnant again with baby Farrah Lane. So it's unclear what year they got married, but they did end up getting married and solidified their relationship, and they ended up having a second baby, baby Farrah Elaine. So they had, like, a boy and a girl, that perfect little balanced-out family. Shortly after they got married, they moved into an apartment in Houston, but their relationship was on the decline. Now, the relationship was on the decline because Adrian, he became more attached to drugs and women. Now, Frances, she 
apparently also dabbled in the drug situation, but I, we're not really sure to what extent. I don't know if she was buying and selling. I don't know if she was just recreational using. The extent of her drug use, we're not completely sure about. But you know, her man was doing it, so she was around. But what her man was also doing was cheating. Cheating cheating hardcore and when she found out she was just like well i'm gonna cheat too <laughs> two wrongs are gonna make a right mm-hmm. and she's <laughs> she said herself that he hadn't been faithful and she wanted him to see how it felt mm-hmm. which is not the best way but i understand in your 20 something year old mind that's definitely was my mindset at the time because i wasn't married in my 20s <laughs> or, or, or late teens early 20s but that's it very much shows her age but she was like anyways i'm a cheat too and this whole time she got herself a little relationship with a dude at school his name is jeffrey freelo so francis actually moved in with jeffrey by herself she left the kids with adrian and she was just you know trying to be happy but adrian found out and he was pissed because i guess when he came home he realized one time that his wife wasn't home because he was never home and he was mad and you know niggas how dare you treat me the way that i've been treating you how dare you cheat on me just because that you know i love you even though i'm cheating on you baby right how dare it's not a two-way street no I cheat on you, and I keep it from you because I love you. That's how niggas be. Mm-hmm. You ain't find out about them hoes. You that's know that John I, Legend That's how much song? I respect you. Which one? John Legend. It's John Legend and Kanye. And he's like, I don't want to cheat, but I don't be saying shit. I tried to jack off. He asked me, who was you playing with? I didn't want to do it to you. He was out here chasing skirts and booger sugar. <laughs> But both of them sat down and they were like, you know, we need to get our relationship back together. We need to get back in sync. You know, baby, we need, you need this. I need this. We need this together. So they both agreed together that they were going to stop fucking around in these streets. They both agreed together that they were going to stop doing these drugs. They was going to get their money right. They was going to get their mind right. They was going, you know, I don't know. They was probably like, baby, we need to go to church together. We need to figure it out. But um, they were still doing drugs and they were still getting in trouble with the law and they were still cheating. Like that conversation basically was maybe just a blip in their memory because literally the next day they were back to doing whatever they wanted to do. So it's 1986. Francis is 21 years old. She's already got a criminal charge for forgery because she was forging bad checks. There aren't many details, like, in the documents, but she was sentenced to three years probation, so she didn't really do any jail time for it. You know, forgery is wrong, but I'm going to leave that there. I ain't ain't no but. (laughs) Later, she was apparently, she was working a couple jobs, you know, trying to keep meals keep food coming and the money coming in the house but she got fired from that job because she was stealing so forage checks stealing you do not shit when you eat bad combination so later in 86 francis was talking to the state farm agent named claudia chapman and claudia is trying to sell her car insurance and francis is like no fine where i'm at don't really need that and so claudia i guess trying to bring in the sale she was like okay what if you take out a life insurance policy? 
we can say this because we can set it up to where it's really a savings account and you can build your money that way. And initially, Francis said no. Then, so that was late 86, early 87, like in February, her cousins died in a house fire. And the family couldn't pay for their funerals because it was just some random death, you know. And so sometime after that, shortly after, Francis' dad is having a conversation with her. And she was like, you know, you need to get some life insurance policies. Like, you have a whole family. And what if something were to happen? You seen what just happened with your cousins and ain't nobody have nothing to put towards it. It was a big stretch. Like, you need to you need to make life decisions and, and get you an insurance policy or whatever. Because anything could like- happen. Right, and granted, she's like 20, 21, so... I'm sure it wasn't on her radar at that It wasn't on her radar, and I feel like her dad was trying to have a very adult, mature conversation with her about your future. And responsibilities. Real responsibilities. You got a husband and two kids. Mm -hmm. So it's March 18th, 1987, a month after the uh, house fire, and Frances takes out a $50,000 life insurance policy on herself, her husband, and her daughter, Farrah. Apparently, one already existed for her son, Alton, which maybe it's like one of them Gerber funds. Isn't that like a life insurance policy? I don't know. I feel like it's more of a college fund, like a put aside for now. But, you know. Um, That's basically life insurance. Maybe it's weird that one kid would have it and the other wouldn't. I guess because one's well, older. Well, Alton's older. Alton's seven at this yeah, time. He's older, so maybe and like Farrah's one of the grandparents. 20 something months. Yeah, so I can only imagine that maybe one of the grandparents put them put him on their life insurance policy as like a y'all are teenager. She was a teenager when he when she had him, so I'm sure that somebody in the family was like, "We'll put him on" because I was on somebody's insurance policy that wasn't my mama for up until 25. You know, when I get kicked off. So the the funny thing about these life insurance policies is that. She kind of went back to her old ways, and she ended up forging her husband's signature on the policies to start them. And he wasn't even listed as a beneficiary. Her second beneficiary was her mother. So that was a little interesting. Smelling fishy. Now, around this time, Adrian said that he wasn't using drugs. And around this time, Frances said, okay. And she checked the place where he always hides drugs. There were no drugs in the medicine cabinet. So she was like, okay, there's no drugs in the medicine cabinet. So this made her think, okay, maybe he actually is getting sober like he said that he was. Like, But some things were happening around the house that just made Francis go, hmm. So Francis claimed that Adrian was terrified of somebody coming to get him. And she was like, maybe it was a drug dealer because he would like sleep under the bed sometimes scared shaking of this drug dealer that he gotten bad with because you know making bad deals when you are hot when you're looking for your next high and he was just acting really weird about it so she was like maybe he's sober but he's still scared of these drug dealers so maybe he's still in bad somewhere financially now at this time francis and adrian remember they were still having their marriage problems they weren't really together they I mean they were living together but you know he was off doing his thing she was off doing her thing they weren't really considered sneaky links because wasn't nobody sneaking to do it and adrian's brother adrian has a brother named sterling and because they were just off doing their own thing sterling his brother was there 
to watch the kids most of the time. Y'all can't do y'all, that, that's a recipe for disaster. Y'all can't even do y'all dirty business. You have to watch how you do your dirty business if you got kids involved. Like, what? Yeah, they be seen and they be known. The kids are not dumb. We keep telling y'all. So about an hour, hour and a half later after coming home, Sterling leaves back out the house again. So now it's about 6.45 and Ramona, Adrian's girlfriend, his whole other relationship outside of his marriage, they were on the phone for about, her and Adrian were on the phone and they talked for about 15 minutes and they're in the car, Adrian's like, yeah, I'm tired. As soon as Francis will get up out of here, I'm going to go to sleep. And it was kind of almost as if he didn't trust her. Like... Why didn't you want to sleep with her in the house or why you felt like you couldn't go to sleep until she left? Um, I don't know. You know, nobody was there, but I know people that have wanted me to leave so that they could go to sleep, especially if I know you. But that's when you company. Mm. Not Not when you in the house you live in. True. If you're listening to this, you probably already know what I'm about to say, that today is the day for you to start your podcast. You have everything that you need, your computer, a little microphone, and Spotify for podcasters. It is the all-in-one platform where you can host, edit, and record your podcast and distribute it everywhere. Where you're listening right now, you can have your podcast there. I promise, for real. And it's free. And you can make some money off of your podcast for free. Free money. Free money is out there. Just go get it by starting your podcast today. Is she on that rah-rah shit? You know, you can't sleep when you're sleeping next to somebody you don't love. So, so yeah, he, he waits for her to leave before resting his eyes. So, now it's between 7, 7, 15, and one of Adrian's friend calls the house to see if they're still going to hang out like they planned. But Francis answers the phone. And when he asked to speak to Adrian, Francis put the friend on hold for forever, like 45 minutes, and didn't come back. And after a while, the friend on the phone eventually hung up. So between 7 p.m. and 7.30, Francis arrives by car to her cousin Sandra's house. And she asked her cousin Sandra if she wanted to come back to the apartment with her. Now, if you're already trying to do this math, because I know how y'all love to be Captain Calculator... Sandra's house was only about 12 minutes away from Francis' house. So very easy, quick turnaround. And Sandra was like, okay, girl, I mean, I don't know why you want me to come to your house with you, but all right. Before they left Sandra's house, Sandra watched Francis remove a blue bag from her car. And next to Sandra's house is like this abandoned house. So she was like, okay, what's my cousin doing? Francis got a blue bag, went to the abandoned house that don't nobody go to. And put the blue bag in the abandoned house. The house actually belongs to Francis's parents. But like I said, nobody uses it because her cousin died in that house. And after after they left Sandra's house, they went to Francis's house. When they got to Francis's apartment, Sandra and Francis walk in the house. When the phone rings, it's Adrian's friend, Alphonse. Now, Sandra hears... Sandra, Sandra said she heard Francis say... Hold on, I think he's asleep. And she puts Alphonse on hold. She's like, where are you, Adrian? Adrian, your phone, your your friend calling the house phone or whatever. So when she walks over to the couch, she finds Adrian. At first she thinks that he's asleep. 
But then she realizes that Adrian is shot once in the head. And then she looks for her children, obviously, because she's a mother. And then she also finds her her son, Alton, and her daughter, Farah, shot in the chest in their bedroom. Everyone was dead by a single gunshot, execution style, and they immediately called 911. Okay, pause. Did she check the room? Because why she wait till the cops was there to pass out? Because she didn't believe it? Yeah, maybe she didn't believe it. Okay. Or maybe she was putting on a show. So... At 8.27 p.m., a Harris County Sheriff Deputy R.W. Ricks arrived at the apartment and greeted Francis and Sandra. In the apartment, he found all three bodies and confirmed that everyone was, in fact, dead. Adrian on the couch in the room shot once in the head, and the two children were each in their own beds shot once in the chest. Francis passes out, like hits the floor and doesn't wake back up. It was so bad, they had to call her her own ambulance to the house and take her to the hospital because she did not get up. She was out, and, like, she couldn't take it. Mm. So, while there, Deputy Ricks noticed that there were no signs of forced entry or struggle to get into the apartment. The next day, an anonymous tip comes in and says that they saw a red pickup truck at the scene of the crime and gave the license plate number to the police. The detectives, they immediately want to know what happened to her family. How is everybody except for Francis alive? So they're trying to figure out, was this a murder-suicide? Maybe Adrian was high or angry and killed the kids and then himself. Or maybe there was an intruder and they were just really good at getting in. Or like, you know, there's not really a forced entry if somebody invites you into your home. You know what I mean? So... There's options all over the place. They got to figure out what it is. All they knew that there were two dead kids and no sign of a struggle. So they keep investigating. So still, the day after the murder, the detectives, they go to Frances to her apartment to get clothing that she had worn on the day of the murder. And she picks out a skirt and a shirt that she was wearing and sent them to the Department of Public Safety Crime Lab to test for pop- to test for possible gunpowder and DNA. So during the investigation, while they were waiting for the ballistics testing, they got a call from the insurance lady who told the police about Francis because she had tried to claim the three policies two weeks after the murder. The cops were getting suspicious, but, you know, who knows? Two weeks, two weeks is, you know, it's about the time of a funeral. It's a good turnaround time. I mean, most funerals are within the week if, you know, your niggas are on top of it. So... I just want to know, how soon should you wait to file to not be suspicious? Because it's always like, oh, and then they tried to cash in, but isn't it for the funeral? Right, and funerals are expensive, and most of those people want their money up front. Like, even just paying for the florist for funerals costs a lot of money. Never mind a casket. Never mind the plot. Oh, gosh, if they don't even have a plot, now you got to find a place to bury them. And even cremation is expensive. Yeah, I was about to say it. Come on now, this stuff is expensive. So, like, two weeks, I feel like it's a pretty, especially for a family that really didn't have a lot of money, I feel like that's a pretty decent time. But anyways, they call in because it's suspicious. But after time passed, detectives questioned Sandra about what happened that night. Remember, Sandra is the cousin. And Sandra was like, you know, tells him everything that happens, but she's like, there was also that blue bag 
bag that Frances had with her when she arrived and that blue bag that, you know, she put in the abandoned house. So she was acting a little weird. So maybe that's worth checking into. So the detectives go next door to her parents' house. They go into the abandoned house and they find the blue bag as promised. And inside of the blue bag is a steel Raven Arms 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol. About the same time that they found the gun, the ballistics testing came back and they were starting to finally see some cracks in this case. They were still waiting for DNA and residue testing on Francis's clothes because, I mean, those shots were at such short range that if you were the person that shot them, there is no way that you wouldn't have blood on you or right. some type of DNA. And it was really, sh I think it was so short that it would have been all over them. So after finding the gun and running a search, they were able to find out that the gun that was found in the blue bag inside of the abandoned house belongs to a Michael Mooton. Now, Michael Mooton, who is this man? I'm glad you asked. Michael Mooton is the cousin of Jeffrey Frelo. Remember him? Jeffrey Frelo? That's right. Francis's boo-hoo. So Michael said that he lent his gun to Jeffrey about, I don't know, five, six months prior to when these murders took place and that he didn't know that Francis had it, but I mean, anything's possible, right? So the police speak to Jeffrey and they're like, okay, Jeffrey, here's everything that we have. What do you have to say? And, you know, he tells them that him and Francis, they were having an ongoing sexual relationship and that, you know, she was living in the house, you know, she was doing the cooking, the cleaning, the laundry and all of that. You know, she was keeping everything nice and neat. And his gun that he borrowed from his cousin, he kept in the top drawer. He was like, so, I mean, yeah, she had access to it. He was like, I mean, she did the laundry. So, I mean, it's there. I'm not saying she did it, but I mean, I'm not saying that she did it. Right. So... She's got all of that, and now the DNA and the gunpowder results have come back, and they're a little crazy. So, forensics expert told the detectives that there were nitrates found on Francis' skirt, and in their expert opinion, the nitrates were from gunpowder residue that was consistent with someone shooting a gun by the lower area, like near her skirt. And that would happen if she shot everybody from above, like if everybody was below her and she shot them like that, right? So, what, so she's standing on top of the couch? Right. So the report also said that, you know, it's it's nitrate. So we don't really have a real way to say where it came from. It could be gunshot residue or it could be fertilizer. Like, there's options here, you know? It's not conclusive evidence. So then on 1987, Francis was arrested, right? So when they pick her up from her parents' house, the cop is telling her dad, you know, don't worry. She's coming back home. We have two guns down at the police station, and the one that came from Francis does not match. But then all of a sudden it does, right? So then on July 17, 1987, she was indicted by a grand jury on charges of capital murder and would await trial in a cell because she was being held without bail. They're all, everybody, all the cops are looking at her like, Francis, if not you, then who? But she maintained her innocence all while waiting through trial and told the police that she knew for sure that it must have been that drug dealer Charlie who killed the family because her husband owed him somewhere between $500 and $1,500. If niggas are killing over $1,500... Niggas are killing for less, friend. <laughs> I don't even know why you, what soapbox you A drug dealer? 
we have done murders where people literally killed over spilled milk. But see, that's what the headlines are saying. But she killed her because she was feeling disrespected and she snapped. It wasn't about the milk. It was about the principle. Uh, so maybe the principle is that he has been hiding under the bed, shaking when you owe me $1,500. Dead people don't pay. You can't come to me as a man and tell me that you ain't got it. Or maybe you've been lying to my face so much that fuck that $1,500, I want your head. You Dead people know. don't pay. And they don't need that smoke. I don't know. I just, it's, it doesn't feel like enough to me. So now it's time for Francis to go to trial. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial. The judge over the trial in the great country of Texas was Judge Charles Hearn, and the prosecutor was Joe Magliolo. Now, her defense attorney was no other than Ronald Mock, a black man. It's important to mention before this trial even begins a little um, Ronald Mock history. Ronald Mock admitted to himself and to the news and to anybody that would listen that he was burned out and not enthusiastic about her case. I wish I would have had a lawyer talking about I'm not enthusiastic about this. Like, even if you're not, you don't have to say it out loud. He he actually recently died in uh nineteen I mean nineteen. He actually recently died in two thousand nineteen and he would jokingly say that he had a reserved parking spot in the offensive grievances with the uh bar. Yeah. Um he was known for the number of capital murder cases that he lost. Yes, he had way more losing cases than winning cases he was known as just not a great lawyer in the state of texas where they are throwing out the death penalty like they throw out mardi gras bees in new orleans like listen they said they said this county specifically if that county was a state they'd be third they'd be the third highest state for death penalty cases or convictions yeah. That if that county were a state, they would be number three. Out of all fifty nifty. And that's whew, that's the problem. One time he went to jail. Um he was jailed for in contempt because he was mishandling a criminal case. A criminal case that was a focus of the Chicago Tri- Tribune investigation into problems with the death penalty in Texas. So, like, the Chicago Tribune was doing a whole thing. He was trying to defend it. He ended up in, in contempt. He's He was a mess. Lost a lot of... Lost... I would just be so upset if I was like, great, I am on debt. I am on... I am up for, like, the max I can get is the death penalty. How many cases have you tried like this? And he says, I've tried so many cases. I've done this, this, and this. I've tried these cases. Great. How many of these cases have you won? Oh, well, not too many. As a matter of fact, I'm actually really tired right now. I really am actually not thrilled about your case and your odds. But, you know, here we go. My job. How discouraging. How discouraging. He He was also suspended or placed on probation by the State Bar of Texas three times. Three times. Oh, Jesus. I told y'all. Personal, he's got a personal parking space at the grievance committee at the board. Like, 
that was a joke he said, but I honestly think it was true. So the prosecution, their strategy was circumstantial evidence, and they had it going on for them. They got the blue bag, they got the gun, and look at her. She's not even remorseful. Um, They had an eyewitness, but no confession. And they had an eyewitness, which was basically the, the cousin and the bag, but they didn't have a confession from her at all. So they did what they did best. They tried to formulate this trial so that, you know, it would stick to the jury so that they would really go home and think about it. Um, so almost every day of the trial, the prosecution would show pictures of the dead kids to the jury, just trying to drill into them just how horrible this case was really get to their heartstrings. I mean, that's the way to play it. Give them the old razzle dazzle. And so because of that, they were seeing these pictures over and over again. They were so blindsided by the fact that they were seeing dead children every day that they weren't realizing that they weren't even seeing any other type of evidence, but it wasn't like the defense was bringing up any evidence. Um, but before this, they actually, before the trial even happened, they offered Francis a plea deal because Adrian's family uh, and the state of Texas as well, they wanted a confession. They were like, if we get a confession out of you, we can get, we can figure something out. Prosecutors offered the opportunity to plead guilty to only killing her for her husband in exchange for life imprisonment, um, but she didn't want to take it because she wanted to maintain her innocence. She was like, you can you can try, but I didn't do it. Her lawyer said that she would never say that she killed her husband or her kids, even if it were only 10 days in the county jail as the sentence. So... She was sticking to her guns and she meant it. The prosecution, you know, they had witnesses. They were ready. They didn't have a lot of evidence, but they were ready to pile it on thick. They had the ballistic expert who confirmed that the bullets in the body, the bullets in the body of the Newton family was from a 25 caliber weapon. They had another expert come to the stand and say that the gun that was found in the blue bag and abandoned at the abandoned house next to her parents' house was the gun that was used to kill the Newton family. And they had a DNA expert come and testify that there was nitrates on the hem of Francis's skirt proving that it was either gunpowder. Well, they were proving that it was gunpowder and not fertilizer. Prosecution was um, ready to go. Ready, ready, really ready to go. So the defense, on the other hand, was a mess, right? Y'all heard about how Ron Mock felt about it, and that's exactly how he performed in the courtroom. He didn't really have a strategy because he didn't really care. He made Frances testify, and once on a stand, she told her side of what happened that day. Streaming October 6th on Paramount+. Plus. first place I learned about death was a pet cemetery. Dead things buried in that land would come back. There's something else. Something's wrong with Timmy. He needs time to adjust. That's not Timmy. Something's talking through him. Sometimes dead is better. Pet Cemetery, Bloodlines, Rated R, streaming only on Paramount Plus. Up there, she stated that on the day of the murder, she picked up her children and came home from work around 4:30. She said her husband's brother Sterling came in at five, and she said. That's when her husband decided, that's when she and her husband decided to reconcile their differences. And she told him that she would stop seeing Jeffrey if he would stop whatever he was doing. 
and then they made love while the children played in the bedroom. Later, she changed out of the skirt and shirt that had the nitrate traces on it, and she left to the apartment at 6 p.m. She left at the house at 6 p.m. in order to pay her car insurance. Before she left, she took a gun, the murder weapon, that, or what they're calling the murder Alleged weapon. Alleged murder. Right. From its location in the kitchen cabinet, and she placed it in her purse. So she said she got it from the house. She said she's never even seen this gun before and denied knowing that it was Jeffrey or even saying that Jeffrey even had a, a handgun to begin with. She testified that she took the gun out of her house because she overheard a conversation between her husband, Adrian, and Sterling where they mentioned that Adrian might have gotten in just a little bit of trouble, right? And she was saying that he was trying to use his gun to get his way out of trouble. And then around 7 p.m., she went to her cousin Sandra's house about 15 minutes away. She stayed away from her apartment because she not only wanted to talk to her cousin Sandra, but... Francis also testified that she and Sandra went back to the apartment, but but upon leaving Sandra's house, Francis took the gun that she said was Alton's, put it in the duffel bag, the blue duffel bag, and placed it inside the abandoned house next door, her, her parents' old house that got burnt down. She, she said that she did this because if her family had seen this gun, they would have thought Adrian was in some kind of trouble. So when she and Sandra get to the front door of her house, Francis's house, but um, she gets home, the door's a little ajar, uh, but as soon as she's walking in, she says, the phone is ringing. She says, now that call that we said earlier that he had with the friend while she was there and was on hold for 45 minutes, she says this was actually the call from Alphonse when she had got back to the house and he just had his time mixed up, right? So while on the stands, although Francis denies putting the gun in the blue bag, which apparently was her son's little bag, maybe it was like a kid bag, I don't know, like a kid duffel bag, seven-year-olds, they have bags, uh, but not a completely sure, but it was, what we do know it was that it was small and it was blue. She denies putting the gun in the bag and stashing the bag at the abandoned house. And she and her lawyers argue that the 25 caliber gun that she hid was not the one used to fatally shoot her family. She said on the stand, I know I didn't murder my kids and my family. It's frustrating that nobody had to answer to that. Now, when Frances was cross-examined, because she is just kind of Clearly, her lawyer did not prepare her for child because just contradictions left and right. When she was cross-examined on the stand by prosecutors, they tried to trip her up on certain things. You know, so Frances testifies that she was aware that her husband had cheated on her during the marriage and that it had embarrassed her. And after discovering her husband with another woman, she may have said that if she caught him running around on her again, that she would kill him. Just maybe. To, she can't be too sure if that's what came out of her mouth. She can't believe if she said... Y'all y'all got to watch these threats. Uh, she also admitted that she was aware prior to the killings that her insurance company had moved to another location because she was going... The whole reason she left is because she said she was going to pay her car insurance. She went to go pick up her cousin. She went to go to this car insurance. And this car insurance place was closed. But also, why are you paying your car insurance at 7 o'clock at night? Now... She also said that both Adrian's friend that called and Ramona, his boo thing, they called around, you know, 7, 7.30. And remember, she answered the phone for uh, Alphonse, the friend. But 
she denied knowing she denied on the stand knowing that Adrian and Ramona were seeing each other. But if that night, that morning, if y'all had a conversation about fucking around, and made love, maybe she, and then got over and made love. I mean, that's a nigga thing though. Like, come on, baby, you know I love Mm-mm. you. Like, but maybe she they did. made love. Okay, that was her words. Yes, whatever. <laughs> it's a difference. They're, okay, he was whispering sweet lies in your ear while y'all was doing it. Great, congratulations. <laughs> um, but it's like you knew that. He, but I, I can I'm, honestly, though, I can kind of believe that. Like you may know that he's fucking around. You may not know who he's fucking around. You may have seen that bitch in a bonnet down the street, but you may not know her name. Mm-hmm. So maybe, maybe she was telling the truth. Maybe she wasn't. Don't know. It's October 24th, 1988. It's the last day of the trial after the prosecution and the defense make their closing arguments and rest their cases. The jury goes to deliberate. Only two hours later, all 12 members filled the courtroom and found Frances Newton guilty and convicted her of capital murder. The following day, October 25th, it was time for the penalty phase. Or the sentencing. During this phase, the state of Texas incorporated all the evidence from the trial, the two prior property crimes, and a recommendation from a psychiatrist who testified that based on a hypothetical question which virtually replicated the state's case, the appellant would be a future danger to society. So all this, so all that was a a cumulative act for the prosecution to, to give her a stricter sentence. And the defense just put a bunch of witnesses on the stand who testified to the emotional emotional and moral support that they that they would give to Francis if she were given a chance to live life outside of prison. But like usual, the jury is not moved. They just had their hearts broken looking at these dead babies all throughout the trial. They can't take it. They want to throw her under the jail at this point. So they took an hour to decide where her sentence would be. And they got to choose between life in prison without the possibility of parole or the death penalty. And they chose the death penalty. After being sentenced to death and sent to the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville, which is one of the oldest Texas state prisons, which opened its doors in 1849, I'm sure on Francis's first night there, which was October 25th, 1988, she was trying to figure out how the hell to get out of there she maintained her innocence since the first day on death row and huntsville worked every day towards her appeal i mean she wanted either like an appeal clemency just the eviction conviction overturned something that would help her her reason for this was because she continued to say that she did not commit these murders she will not say that she did it absolutely no way there was not a crack in her at all she talked about conflicting she talked about openly about the conflicting guns how the police told her one thing and then actually did another and she also found out of a man who was in prison bragging about the killings which you know jailhouse informants there's always that but like somebody in there saying that they did it and is anybody gonna follow up on top of that that red truck who that anonymous tip called in and gave the license plates to detectives never followed up on that crazy nor did they talk to charlie the drug dealer to see if he had anything to do with the murders 
Frances said the gun belonged to her husband, who had it because he dealt drugs, and that she hid it in an abandoned house to keep him from getting in trouble. She was like, they didn't look into that anymore. She says the gunpowder on her shirt was fertilizer. They didn't, you know, properly rule that out. And all the times that, you know, because she said she spent a lot of time having her uncle in gardens. And that was clearly just a case of the nitrate getting, you know, put in her shirt from the fertilizer, like they said, could be a possibility. She right, said that why would it be on the him and not anywhere Everywhere. Else? You know what I, I mean? I mean, like, three killings and it's only on the him of your right. garment? No. Not on your shirt, not on your, all over your, your just pelvic area of the, the skirt, but just the him. You got all these other clothes. Mm-mm. She also gets into the insurance policies, and she was like, "This was not a plot to get rich quick or whatever." She was like, "These are long-term goals that I wanted to achieve by saving money and being a responsible adult." And this is what they say we're supposed to do. She was like, "Of course, I had to keep it a secret from Adrian. He blows all the money on fucking drugs. I'm trying to create a future, you know. Can't have him out here knowing that we building a bank." Then, generational wealth. Exactly. So this this starts her journey to begin to beg Texas for her life. On June 17, 1992, Texas Court of Criminal Appeals affirms that the com- affirms her conviction and her sentence. She tried twice to get her case to the US Supreme Court, but they denied her each time. She tried once in June of 93 and again in August of 93, and they weren't even giving her the time of day. On December 2000, in December of 2000, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals Appeals agreed with the courts that convicted her and denies her another appeal. November 2003, she applies to the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, and she files for another appeal. By May of the following year, they denied her request. July 2004, the Harris County Trial Court set Francis Elaine Newton's execution date for December 1st, 2004. So they're like, you done at the end of this year, right? So it's coming close to her time. It's November 10th, and Francine petitions for clemency with the Texas Board of Pardons and Parolees. Like, she's literally out here begging for her life. On the 18th, Francis asked the trial court for a stay of execution and an appointment of new counsel. On November 29th, there was a 5-1 to one majority of the Texas Board of Pardons and Parole that recommended granting Francis a 120-day reprieve and a temporary suspension or delay of her execution. So it's December, so it's December 1st, 2004, the day of her execution, just 2 hours before Francis is set to be put to death, and Governor Rick Perry, yes, that Rick Perry, granted the 120-day stay of execution by putting out this statement. <clears throat> After a lengthy review of the trial transcript, appellate court rulings, and clemency proceedings, I see no evidence of innocence. However, I'm granting the additional time to allow the courts the opportunity to order a retesting of gunpowder residue on the skirts of the defendant worn at the time of the murders and of the gun used in the murders. He said all of this because there was new technology available for testing, which... I mean, yes, but, question mark? 
Listen, he was like, you got a, you got better ways to prove your case now, so prove it. You got 120 days. Go. Um, Rick Perry, you are a piece of shit. Like, do we want to talk about what you do, what you've done in the past couple of years? You know what? I'm not gonna. It's not this case, not this story. Story of how you murdered America. Um. Anyways. <laughs> um. So Francis was. You know, she was feeling very positive about this. She was just saying, finally, I was, she was hopeful that somebody would hear her, that somebody would hear her case and hear her story. But, you know, what was not, so everything is getting ready. We got the new technology. We're about to go, we're about to get this ready for testing. Francis is just feeling positive. But guess what was not available for additional testing? Y'all got any guesses? Taking bets? Taking bets? The guns? No, the guns were there. The skirt, yeah, the skirt was there, but it was not available for testing. You want to know why? Because the skirt that Francis wore that was this huge piece of evidence because of the nitrates on the hem of the garment, the police officers put the skirt in the same evidence bags as all of the other evidence for the case, including... The weapons, the guns, therefore cross-contaminating her skirt. And it is completely unusable for the purposes of court. Yeah, that fucking sucks, doesn't it? Especially if that's like her big, ooh, but we've got this. And I'm like, no, do you? Dude. I remember my first time hearing it. or read, No, what was my first time with this information? I think I heard this information first. And I was like, oh, they did what? But like... Everything needs to be in a separate bag. <sighs> Just simple things are not so um, easy for a lot of y'all over there in Texas <laughs> that are the color of my palm. <laughs> so on February 11, 2005, the defense ballistic expert issued a report reaffirming that three bullets recovered from the victim's body matched the bullets test fired from the 25 caliber Ravens Arms semi-automatic pistol. On March 17, 2005, the Texas child court denied Francis' request for further testing of the evidence. And on April 21, 2005, the 120-day stay is over with. And this is when the Harris County Child Court scheduled Francis' execution for Wednesday, September 14, 2005. After 17 years of appeals and 17 years on death row, Frances agreed to do her first and only videotaped interview. During this interview, there were questions posed for her to answer however she liked. Questions about her lawyer, the gun, the inconsistencies, her family, etc., etc. Here are a couple of clips from that, but it's available to you on YouTube. There are so many things that I don't know and I don't have answers to, but there are some things that I do know and that I know that if a jury knew that they would have come to a different decision. The, the issue with the ballistics and the gun, um, they would have found out that the shell casings found there didn't match the weapon that they're saying is the murder weapon. That still hasn't been brought up in any of the court hearings. And that's a major, that's something I didn't know, but that um, one of the attorneys working on the case now told me about. That the, and those are like fingerprints. Uh, it's, it's something that wasn't brought up in trial. 
you know, and I think that the jury should be able, should have been able to hear that. Mark has already said he was tired, he didn't want to take the case. So he didn't even look, I don't even think he looked at the police report, you know. One of my neighbors said they heard gunshots at 7.30. Why weren't they brought to testify in trial, you know? I just saw that in the clemency report, you know. I never knew that. That person should have been brought to trial to testify. That was something the defense was supposed to do and never did. What I know is that Sergeant Freeze told my father when he came to get me from my, from my parents' house that there were two guns in the state's possession and the gun that I had wasn't the murder weapon. He told my father I would be back for that reason. Uh, Ron Mock, when, we first, when I was first arrested and began going to court, he told us that there were two guns in the state ev state's evidence and the gun that I had wasn't the murder weapon. As far as the ballistics test coming back, saying that uh, the gun in the state's evidence is a murder weapon, I don't know. You know, it, it may be. But what I know is that the gun I had the night that I left, the day that I left my apartment, is not the murder weapon. The insurance had nothing to do with anything. I, I got that for a savings plan. Claudia said she told them that, you know, but it was made to be out of a, a big deal. You know, six months prior, she had talked to me about the insurance. You know, my dad had talked to me about insurance. Um, at that time, I know that my husband owed money to this guy he was selling drugs for. The, the guy is not a figment of my imagination, you know. That, that was real. That was going on. You know, and it had my husband so concerned at times. Sometimes we would come home and Alton would come out of his room and say, Mom, Dad, sleep under the bed, you know, under his bed. He, we wouldn't see his car anywhere, but he'd be under the bed sleep, you know. So that was something that was going on. And of course, when, when I find out that my husband and children murdered, that was my first thought. I don't feel guilt in the sense that if I had done something differently that it could have been prevented. I don't feel that type of guilt. I, sometimes I feel that I could have said something earlier about, about the things that Adrian was doing and maybe earlier it could have been prevented or maybe not even agreed with it at first. I ask myself what could I have done differently, you know, I do do that. but. Not to the extent that I feel guilt about it, no. So it is August 24th, 2005. Frances, she has never given up her fight. She petitioned to the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles for clemency, again. Um, on September 8th, 2005, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals and the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles dismissed Frances's claims. On September 12th, 2005, Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles voted 7 to 0 and recommended that the government not grant clemency to Francis. On September 14, 2005, at 6 p.m. in Huntsville, Texas, after declining a last meal for the second time, 
40-year-old Frances Elaine Newton was walked down the hallway of death row of the death row section of Texas State Penitentiary at Huntsville to the death danger to become the third woman executed in Texas in 29 years. She spent almost half her life, about 17 years, begging for this moment not to come, but here she was being instructed to lie down on the gurney and face the angel of death. The executioner strapped both her arms and her legs down to the gurney, and Frances's dark brown eyes looked over at her parents and her sisters who were among the people watching. When the warden asked if she wanted to make a final statement or if she had any last words, just like the final meal, she declined, quietly saying no while shaking her head. Before the lethal drug cocktail began to do its work for the state of Texas, Frances began to mouth something to her family, but the drug took its effect. Frances' body began to convulse while she coughed and gasped for air. As her eyes closed and her mouth remained slightly open, the drugs seeped into her veins. After eight long minutes, at 6.17 p.m., Frances Elaine Newton was pronounced dead. Outside of the prison walls were about 300 protesters from the Texas Death Penalty Abolition Movement, the National Black United Front, the New Black Panther Party, the National Association for the Advancement of Color People, and regular civilians just against the death penalty. We're standing here with Miss Preston. Longtime friend Francis Newton. We're a few minutes after the execution time. I would like to say, first of all, I would like to thank Senator uh, Simpson. I would like to thank Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee for all of the efforts that she made to try to stop this execution. I'm appalled at the fact that our governor, Rick Perry, could allow this this execution to go forth. I am disgusted to even call myself a Texan at this point. Francis didn't deserve this. She's already suffered enough. She did not deserve it. When the governor of this state could have easily, it did not cost not one female dollar to give Francis a 30-day stay of execution so that her innocence could be proven. I am disgusted that you would bring over 250,000 people from New Orleans into the state of Texas and, and say that you are helping and you are humanitarian when you have just taken and you could have prevented this life being taken. I am disgusted. I am appalled at Governor Perry for his actions today because ultimately you could have stopped this. We were, we the citizens of Houston. We voted you in to be the voice for citizens of Houston, Texas. Be the black voice. You, we put you there. You, we put you there for a reason. It, 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 it didn't have to come to this. And I'm sick. I'm disgusted at the government and the judicial system that has just executed Francis John LaGrape, one of her attorneys, met with Francis less than two hours before she was executed and described her as strong and optimistic. He waited outside of the prison walls as the execution was taking place because he did not want to watch the execution. Um, he characterized her as a victim of a set of statues that denied her access to the Supreme Court and blamed state-appointed lawyers early in her appeals process for missing deadlines that barred Newton from raising legal claims. In a news interview, he said, It's a sad statement about the judicial process. To me, this is outrageous. 
Across town in Austin, Texas, about 100 people protested the execution outside of the governor's mansion. Yeah, your ass. According to the results of a Public Information Act request submitted by the Texas Moratorium Network, 12,201 people contacted Governor Rick Piece of Shit and asked him to stop Francis's execution. 10 people contacted him in support of the execution. So Frances, she's like spending all this time behind bars. She's maintained her innocence. She somehow managed to keep her crime a secret from the other inmates while she was in there. In an interview that Frances did with the Houston Chronicle, she said that, quote, for a long time I believed in the death penalty, but now I know that the system can't be trusted to be right. I've been wrongly accused wrongly convicted. Francis Elaine Newton is buried in the Paradise Cemetery in Houston, Harris County, Texas, and was the first black woman executed in the state of Texas since a slave named Lucy was lynched in Galveston, Texas in 1858. Since 2005, there have been five women executed by the state of Texas, and as of right now, there are two black women awaiting execution in Texas. All right, y'all, it's time for... Well, I'm not black. I'm OJ. I didn't do it, but if I did, this is how I would have got away with it. I ain't do it, but if I did, I would have not been messing around with anybody's gun whatsoever. Like, if you don't own the weapon, don't touch the weapon. If you don't want to be accused of doing something you ain't got no business with the weapon, don't don't use the weapon. Simple as that. Because why would you have, if you didn't have, you kept, she kept going and forth, back and forth about this gun. I'm not going to lie. I'm not 100% convinced that she didn't do it. But I'm not 100% convinced that she did, and that's the issue. Mm -hmm. And, like, I agree with her. I don't, I know you're for it, but I don't like the death penalty for reasons like this. It's like, at what cost to all the people who are in there for the wrong reason? You know what I mean? Like yeah. as bad as somebody else did, how many how many innocent people die just for the sake of revenge? Especially in a place where it's, it's so consistent. hard to prove yourself. Like you gotta beg somebody to even give you another chance, and right, then hope and you don't get the same person who already has their mind made up about you, because that's how they usually have it. You're in front of the same judge trying to convince the same person. I ain't do it, but if I did, I just. I feel like once you decide that you're going to stop cheating with your nigga, like y'all both need to sit at home and look at each other not just make love and then go about your business. And if they really made love when they been, I don't know, maybe it's the hopeless romantic in me. But if we got over a spat and we're cool, which like, (laughs) you're going to come date me and you're going to cheat, please. Um, But let's say that for some (coughs) weird reason, Marah forgave you. uh, (laughs) can't even get it out right um <laughs> some weird some weird reason Marah forgave you oh you're gonna be by my side we're gonna be stuck like glue because i gotta keep my eye on you because i don't trust you uh. and if we apparently made makeup love then why would i not be in bed why are you waiting on me to go somewhere please right let me see i ain't do it but if i did i, I wouldn't have used guns poison in the foods Gotta get one of those little plants or something that's toxic and just feed it in a little bit at a time, something like that. I wouldn't right, wait for it gun. That money if she did even, it. That one. Well, I guess that's it. 
you know what was smart and what makes me think that she did do it was because um what makes me she think had that she Sandra did with is, her all day being an alibi no, evening. not even that. That was a good one for her to go pick up her cousin, but that those insurance policies went out to her mom because if you cause, if say you and I have insurance policy, we've said this before on the show, but say Tazzy, you and I are, we're not, but let's say we're married and we have an insurance policy. If I'm the cause of your death, I cannot get that, in, that money. Mm-hmm. So in order to ensure that that money was going to go somewhere that um, can be of use, she had it signed out to her mother as the beneficiary and not her man. Mm -hmm. You think that's why she did it? I don't think that's why she did it, but I definitely think that that's some, that would, that made me cock my head to the side and go, Hmm. Yeah, I just really think there's just a real issue on... I think it's not being clear that the prosecution holds the burden of proof, not the defense. And it's like people be like, uh, you did it. Just because my story is capable of me doing it, have we reached beyond a reasonable doubt? And I don't think we have, you know? And I guess it was probably hard for that jury looking at these dead babies every day. Like, you just... At this point, you want somebody to pay. And if they're saying it's this person, you know what I mean? But even, like, her mom was like... I think I think maybe the people who get selected for jury duty, maybe the problem is they really believe in this justice system. And her mom was like, this taught me a lesson. She said, I thought the cops was the good guys and they're here to help. And that, you know, no. people who went to jail went to jail because they did something wrong. And she was like, it's not that simple. It's not... She was like... I sure was taught a lesson. It humbled me because she was like, it's just not the case. She was like, I believed so much in our justice system, and I'm just so disappointed at how everything turned out. Parole or no parole? I don't know, girl. I definitely feel like they should have given you an honest shot at your appeal, and but... They really yeah. fucked that up with the with the. She scenario. needed to. I feel like she needed a of, chance with it with the lawyer who cared. Right, and she. It seems like she got it, but she got a lawyer who cared at the very last minute, like at the eleventh hour, with contaminated evidence. So, and and not a great story to start off with. So I think this is really just a case of like how the justice system fucks you over, but does it prove innocence? Can't 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 speak to that shoddy all right y'all it's time for some reviews tazzy you want to go all right this one says hey y'all hey i'm a 39 year old black woman who's obsessed with this black podcast i found you on spotify three weeks ago and i put my whole family on i play it everywhere i go out loud lol so whoever's around gotta listen to y'all are amazing at this Normally, I have to watch true crime stories, but not with you ladies. It's like my homies telling me stories instead of some bland uh, yellow emoji people. Keep it up, sisters, and good luck. Yes, my favorite episodes were the Lululemon murder and Heather Matt. And please don't start cussing, winky face. Hashtag newbie. Hashtag but I'm caught up. Hashtag black girls rock. Hashtag sisters who kill. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much. Um, This says best podcast. I have been searching for a black true crime podcast and I found y'all on Snapchat. Told my friends about you guys so they can love you too. 
Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Tell a friend. Tell a friend to tell a friend. All right, that's the end of our show. Um, if you want to keep up with us, or if you want any ad space, or if you want just to say hi, you can email us at sisterswhokillpodcast at gmail.com. You can tell us that you love us. You can tell us you hate us. If you, t- if you don't like us, please just send it in our emails and don't put it in our reviews. If you uh, want to tweet us, we're on Twitter at sisterswhokill. If you want to follow us on uh, TikTok, it's sisterswhokillpodcast. Instagram, Sisters Who Kill Pod. You can join the discussion group, but make sure you answer those questions to get in. Stop playing with the girl. Oh, and if you want to leave us a voice memo of your very own, I didn't do it, but if I did, this is how I would have got away with it. For any of the cases, you can do that on anchor.fm and you may hear your voice on the show. You got anything else, friend? Talk to us, we talk back. Bye. Bye.